Hey there. Here we are again at Discast. This week, from Provincetown to Far Island, we're really covering the mainstream of America here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this, this week, we have my old friend Josh Barrow, who is a brilliant, fun, amazing, reasonable business and politics journalist. Sorry, I'm trying to think of compliments on the wing here, but he's worked for Business Insider, the New York Times and New York Magazine, where we briefly, I think, overlapped. Josh currently, however, is liberated as I am, runs his own substack called Very Serious. And it is very serious. It's, it's seriously very, very serious. Very serious. And he goes to host, sorry, Cozy host, co-hosts, co-hosts a legal podcast called Serious Trouble, which is also very serious. And mm -hmm. you can get all of that. Somewhat less serious. Somewhat less serious. I'm sorry. Yes. I'm I, I won't. I won't. I won't. I find it just anyway. It's a, it was a it's a great title. I think uh, the same with thank you. Same with Matt's slow boring. It's like it's such a nice counterintuitive yeah. thing. I came up with the dish like in 1998 out of a desperation. So I feel I've been stuck with it <laughs> for 25 years. But nonetheless, welcome. And I, just to give you a heads up, if you're enjoying these podcasts, please subscribe. You can only get an hour of it. You can't get the full thing without subscribing. But Subscribing also helps sustain us. We don't do ads. I'm not going to try and sell you a lawnmower or a mortgage or anything else <laughs> like that. We're thrilled to have you all. We reached actually 150,000 all-time full subscribers, not paid subscribers, 150,000. And we are solidly over 20,000 paid. So that's fantastic. And we are intensely grateful. But if you want to support us, just two of us here doing all this, please do. And coming up on the Dishcast, we have some pretty, pretty rockable guests. We have Michael Moynihan, my man, Michael Moynihan, because I always want to talk to Michael in the summer because he's hilarious. I've also finally broken down after two years of being lobbied and having Vivek Ramaswamy on, oh, on the Dishcast. <laughs> have fun. I will. And on his vision for America. And, we're, and then we're having a return of Saurabh Akhmari which I suppose I'm supposed to say Sora Bamari, right? That's what. Anyway, his new book, which is his conversion to what seems to be socialism, is is imminent too. And I will, I don't know that because I haven't read it yet. I will do. And then we're taking a tiny little, not a tiny, we're actually taking a break. Our annual break in August where I get to celebrate my birthday and we get to chill for a bit before we enter the fray again at the very end of this month. So we're going to take a little breather soon. Anyway. All that's just little notes, as they say at Mass after communion. And today we have Josh Bauer. Josh, thanks so much for coming on and welcome. Hi, Andrew. Show. Great to be here. Josh is working an amazing porn mustache, which we in the mustache-loving community definitely support and encourage. The mustache-loving community, by the way, seems to be growing and growing. I've been yeah. noticing this over the last few years. Is it, is, it, is it Ted Lasso? Is it Ned Flanders? It, 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 it's... It's it's very seventies in a way. It's Tom Selleck throwback. Who else is out there with a good good solid porn mustache? Gosh, see, it's not kind I don't of, know. So so many people that I know here in the Fire Island Pines. Well. For one. You see, well, then it, then just know this: it's coming to you. It always starts in the Fire Island Pines, and some poor mm -hmm. straight guy in Ohio is going to be doing this in eighteen months' time, right? <laughs> Not that he hasn't been doing it for the last 18 months or so. Unironically, right. though, isn't there irony attached to this mustache, Josh? 
Oh no, this is this is very serious. The mustache is is extremely serious. I mean, I don't. I think you know, in terms of the why now, I think a lot of people got to experiment with their appearance during the pandemic when they were not going and seeing anyone. And I think some people grew their facial hair, grew their grew a mustache during the pandemic, realized that it was actually good, and then kept it. Huh. So you know, the a lot of the the changes that were supposed to be permanent from COVID and from COVID behaviors are, are melting away. And we have real printed menus in, in restaurants again, but I think the mustaches might be one of the enduring things. And working from home hasn't hasn't disappeared yet. It's still pretty resilient, is it not? Right. Working mm -hmm. from home and mustaches, the two things we have to thank COVID for, <laughs> also the election yes. of Joe Biden, I think some other things that we that COVID brought with it. But Josh, tell me, because we always start with this question, where you grew up. Yeah who your parents were, what your earliest sort of influences were. Why did you end up where you are? So I grew up outside Boston in a suburb called Weston. It's 12 miles west of Boston. Although actually starting midway through my childhood, we also had a summer home in Truro, right by Provincetown where you are. So I was, I was in Provincetown a lot as a child, which is a, a fairly unusual thing, especially for one who would then grow up to be gay. I'm the youngest of four siblings. My father is an economics professor at Harvard University, which is why we were in the Boston area. My mother has a bachelor's degree from Brown in anthropology, but she uh, stayed at home through most of her adulthood, raising the four of us. And so that was, you know, that was where I came from. Were you the oldest? Uh, no, I'm the youngest oh, okay. of four. Yeah. Boys? I have an older brother and two older okay. sisters. Yeah. And so, you know, I came out of there and I think, you know, in terms of how that affected, you know, who I became today, I mean, you know, I, I, I went on to Harvard myself where I studied psychology, but I worked in banking for a while and then I worked in policy research. And I think, you know, my, my interest in the economy, which primarily drives the way that I, that I think about writing about politics. Obviously, I have, I have lots of opinions about lots of issues and I write about a lot of them, but I feel like I have, I have more to say that's, that's different from the rest of the punditocracy when I can talk about economic issues. So I prefer to, to, to sort of focus on that area of our politics. You know, I'm having, having a parent who is in that is in that area of academic study and who has a fairly rigorous way of thinking about these sorts of things, I think, you know, sharpened both my interest and, and my ability to make arguments around it. You know, we, the, there were all those pieces about the, how to talk to your family about politics at Thanksgiving, maybe six or seven years ago. And like, how to, you know, how do you explain to your, to your stupid uncle why Obamacare is actually a good thing? And, you know, those pieces were insufferable, both because they were describing like a terrible kind of, of, of pedantic behavior, but also they were terrible for me because the, the, the quality of the policy discussion around our Thanksgiving table in the Barrow household was extremely high. My, my older siblings are all very smart people with, you know, careers that end up touching on certain things that related to public policy from time to time. And so, you know, we always had a really high level of, of argumentation in the home that I think, you know, helped position me well for what it is that I do today. But you went to study psychology, not economics at Harvard. Where, did you do any scholarly work in economics? You fraud? I, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I, had a, I had a decent amount of coursework in economics uh -huh. and also in political science uh -huh. while I was in college. You know, I, I thought I was going to go to law school. And so I thought that it was not tremendously important what my what my major was. And I thought that psychology was a little bit useful for, for everything that you might do. I had most of my coursework was in social psychology. Hmm. And I think that's broadly true, although I, if, for people who've been following the replication crisis in the in the ensuing in the ensuing almost two decades since I graduated college, I, occasionally I pick up the newspaper and I read some story about some finding that's been debunked, which is something that I was, you know, I was taught in college as state of the art research at the time. So I think that, you know, some of the more like fun fact 
uh, type psychology findings have been increasingly debunked. But I, I studied that in large part because I thought it would be flexible for for a wide variety of things that I might do. I mean, that's sort of the the, the luxury of, of coming out of Harvard is that you can study whatever it is that you want and then, you know, go on to professional school or go on and work in, you know, in consulting or banking and basically develop career specific skills after you get out of college. And I realized that's not really transferable to most institutions. And so I was, you know, I actually, I didn't do investment banking. I was a commercial banker, a commercial mortgage banker at Wells Fargo for four years after college, which actually really helped me learn a lot about at least, you know, certain aspects of the economy and also about how to, how to write about fairly complex, somewhat quantitative issues uh, for an audience that was smart, but didn't have a lot of time to, to read about them. I think writing loan memos at the bank was actually more useful for learning how to write a good op-ed than the kind of coursework writing that I did in college. But the the banking work was mostly a placeholder trying to, when I decided I didn't think I wanted to be a lawyer, I didn't want to go to law school and, you know, in, incur three years of tuition expense in order to basically buy time, which felt like something that a lot of people did coming out of Harvard and similar schools. So I figured if I was going to wait to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, I might as well earn an income while I did that. And, and banking was good for was me. Was there any particular reason you, you thought, nah, I don't want to go to law school? Was there a moment when you were you said you were planning to do it, and when did anything come your way that you were like, "No, I'm not going to do that"? I'm trying to remember what it was because I, I there was one point where I decided not to go immediately out of college, and I can't remember a specific realization mm -hmm. other than that I wasn't really sure that I wanted mm -hmm. to be a lawyer. Once I'd gotten out of college and I was living in New York City, and I got to know some people who were lawyers, I found that a lot of people really didn't seem to enjoy <laughs> being lawyers. <laughs> And how many? I also, when I was, how many people? And, and, sorry, go on. And also, while I was at the bank, you know, it, it was sort of like, you know, I'm this very junior banker there, and I've taken instructions from my boss and from the credit officers and from the client and all these people. And the only person I got to order around was our lawyer, and sending the loan doc back and be like, no, this is wrong, fix this, get this back to me, that sort of thing. And so part of it was like, why would I go be the one guy that the 22 year old analyst at the bank gets to tell what to do from day to day? And, you know, my sense is, you know, in law, as you advance professionally, you make more money, but the work doesn't actually get easier and lighter. There are a lot of other fields where you get into senior positions and you're sort of just supervisory and, and other people work on the weekend and you don't. Whereas partners in law firms are very well paid, but they, they still work crazy hours and are still at the beck and call of their clients. It just didn't seem like the life that I wanted. And your understanding of how economics affects politics, you did poli-sci as well. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's a contingent relationship. It's not a it's not a clear or simple one. It's a compl complicated one because that brings us to a sort of fascinating question about where we are now. Give me, mm -hmm. give me your sense of where the economy, the US economy is at this point in time. We see, I mean, I'll tell you the conventional wisdom mm -hmm. that I get as an idiot reading right. the papers is that in fact, things are relatively good, that we, we mm -hmm. don't seem to be headed to a recession, even though we've jacked up the rates considerably. Mm -hmm. We have been producing more jobs than we used to recently. We have we're pretty close to full employment at some at, in some ways. Inflation is declining. Tell me why you think we are in a, what seems to be a relatively good place. Well, I mean, I, so I, to take first your point about the the interplay between politics and the economy, I think you know one of the key areas of, of interplay is that government officials get a tremendous amount of credit and blame for the condition of the economy, often more credit or more blame than they deserve. And so the pattern that you're seeing around 
the world right now with incumbent parties very unpopular and very often getting defeated for re-election, I think reflects the fact that, that politicians around the world are being blamed for economic difficulties, principally high inflation. And the global nature of those difficulties would seem to suggest that they are probably getting more blame for that than they deserve, that there are broad global factors that have been happening that are driving that inflation. Now, some countries are doing better than others. I'm not saying that, that public policy and public officials have no influence over that condition. But I think, you know, first of all, one of the things that you're seeing is that if the economy does badly or if people are unhappy with the economy, you get punished for it, whether it was your fault or not. And I think one weird thing about politics is that, you know, even, pol even though politicians focus a lot on the economy, I still don't think they focus quite as much as they should on it. And in particular, you know, enormously important for economic performance, for inflation, for growth is monetary policy. And monetary policy is very often an afterthought in our politics. Now, I think the, the Biden administration has thought very seriously about who to put on the Federal Reserve. And I think that's true of most governments that they, you know, they, they pay attention to this when they're having to make the appointments. But it, sort of, it still doesn't get quite the, the level of weight that it deserves in figuring out, am I going to win this next election? Is monetary policy causing a problem now that I'm going to have to pay for later? And I think, as we'll discuss, that did get a little bit away from us, at least in 2021, with the Fed not acting quite quickly enough to raise interest rates. So I think, you know, that that's the primary interplay that, you know, if, if the economy is bad, you're going to hurt. When you talk about monetary policy, what do you actually mean yeah. by that? The amount of money that the government is allowing to operate in the economy, is that is that a, a broad description of this or what? Well, I mean, so monetary policy consists, I mean, the, 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 primary, the primary driver of monetary policy is interest rates. The Federal Reserve actually acts in, in the market for, for government, for treasuries, purchasing and selling in order to influence the interest rate on short-term treasuries. And so they raise that rate when they're trying to tighten economic conditions to get the economy to cool off. And so when they raise interest rates, you know, mortgage rates get higher and people become less inclined to buy and build houses, it becomes more expensive to buy a car, it becomes more expensive for businesses to invest in new equipment. So higher interest rates cool off the economy and push down inflation. Lower interest rates will heat up the economy and push up inflation. There have also been a number of other tools that have been really important over the last 15 years or so, especially when interest rates were at or near zero. The Fed does not have a good way to put interest rates below zero. So if interest rates are at zero, but the economy is still not being stimulated enough, they have to take other actions, which they can take through the banking system. They can take by buying longer term securities that they wouldn't normally trade in, whether that's long term treasury bonds or mortgage bonds. Basically, when the Fed buys those up, that further pushes down longer term interest rates. They can also make statements saying, you know, not only are interest rates low now, but we're going to keep them low for several years. That affects expectations in the market. A business can, can invest in equipment and know not only that it can get cheap financing now, but they can believe they will get cheap financing in the future that will make it sustainable. So those are the things the Federal Reserve does to heat up or cool down the economy. But the, the primary mechanism is an interest rate mechanism. Yeah. Why, given the fact that we've had quite serious interest rate increases after what was the worst bout of inflation in a couple of uh, several decades, actually, did we not have a drastic slowdown the way that many people predicted or that you would ignore? Is it because we fl also flooded the entire economy with a huge amount of money during COVID and thereafter? Yeah. And in some ways, how much of that... Uh, contributed, do you think, to the inflation? I'm, I, I don't doubt that it mm -hmm. was not the only thing, but did it make things worse in America? Yes. Yeah, the... the the economy was overstimulated in the United States. The American Rescue Plan, you know, for, for for people who were not following this bill by bill, just to refresh people, there was one big stimulus package uh, in the spring of 2020 
as the the hardest part of the COVID pandemic was hitting, that was the CARES Act, which was trillions of dollars of outlays through. There were checks sent to most Americans. There was enhanced unemployment insurance. There was the PPP program to support business payrolls. Uh, there was aid to state and local governments, a variety of mechanisms of pushing cash out into the economy through fiscal policy, which is, as compared to monetary policy, fiscal policy is when the government borrows and spends and pushes cash out into the economy that way. So you had that. Then Joe Biden is elected. There's sort of this expectation there's going to be a Republican-controlled Senate, and there's going to be little to no additional fiscal stimulus. Then Democrats managed to win both Senate seats in those runoffs in Georgia, in large part due to an assist from Donald Trump, who was being very unhelpful with Republicans trying to get turnout into those two elections. And so Democrats ended up with the barest of majorities in Congress, and they managed to move a $2 trillion additional uh, stimulus package through Congress. And that package uh, probably should have been in the ballpark of $1 trillion. I mean, you can ask different economists, you'll get different opinions. More, cons more conservative economists will say it turned out that you didn't need any additional package. But most of them will say that, that $2 trillion in retrospect was too much. Now, I think that's, that's partly because the economy was more resilient than either conservatives or liberals expected it to be to the specific kinds of disruptions that we had in COVID. So I don't know that the Democrats should have realized at the time that it was too large by a trillion but it, it ended up being too large. And as, as, I, as we'll discuss, they passed up certain opportunities to suck some of that money out, back out of the economy when it became clear that we really didn't need that much stimulus. But they were, the other, and they then, had a certain and then the other big error. PTSD from 2008, presumably. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, there's, there's also a cost to understimulating the economy. And I think that's, you know, when, when people think about how has the economy been doing in the Biden administration, we've had too much inflation, but growth has actually been decent and the employment situation has been quite good. It's 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 been an, it's been easy to find a job throughout this process, and the, and real wage growth had gone negative. Now it is back slightly positive again. Those numbers seem to be improving, which is to say that you know people's wages are actually rising fast enough to more than keep up with inflation again. And people, if they want to be employed, they can be employed. So those are good results, and you can compare it to the outcome of the two thousand eight crisis, which had different causes, and so the, the the policy needs were different, and how well you could have done was different. But basically, you had a situation there where there was no inflation problem. Arguably, inflation was too low, but you had persistently high unemployment and a persistently slack labor market, giving you a different set of problems. And I think when you look around the world and say, well, how much better could the US have done? You had some countries like Japan and Canada that have had, had lower inflation, somewhat lower in Canada, really materially lower in Japan. But those countries also had slower economic recoveries. And so the US did one of the most general, the US did one of the most generous fiscal stimuli around the world. And, you know, that, it drove me nuts during that process when you had the sort of Bernie Sanders types on the left saying all we got was $1,200, looking at just one piece of a, of a you know, a many piece or $1,400, I guess was the number, just one piece of a, you know, a, a really multi-part stimulus package that was actually bigger than you generally saw in Europe or Canada or anywhere else. I think that's a key reason that the U.S. has had the fastest economic recovery of any of the, the major industrialized countries. You know, we are closer to getting back to our pre-pandemic growth trend than not just the EU countries, which have specific Russia-Ukraine issues we can discuss later. It's also faster than Canada, faster than Japan. So I think you know, when you look on a global level, I think this record is quite good. But the obvious downside, which is a very real one, that's a real problem in people's lives, is that there's been too much inflation. And we've seen quite a bit of improvement on that, not quite enough yet. And we don't know exactly what the performance is going to be over the next year or so. But obviously, yes, inflation is, is the big problem. One 
driver of that problem was excessive fiscal stimulus, which was then continued, by the way, in the form of a student loan suspension program that went on longer than it should have. People talk so much about the cancellation of student debt principal. They don't focus so much on you know, people haven't been paying interest for years. That was a $60 billion annual stimulus, effectively. And then you also have these efforts to, you know, to do what were these illegal efforts, I, I agree with the Supreme Court, to do cancellation of student debt, which is also stimulative. So you had a, a number of things the administration did that stimulated the economy too much. The Federal Reserve also didn't respond to that in the right way. I mean, the Fed, like everyone else, came came into the, the, the immediate aftermath of the 2020 election, not expecting a large stimulus to come from Congress in early 2021, which did. The Fed should have adjusted its outlook for that and it should have started raising interest rates earlier. And then we would have likely seen a somewhat different tra trajectory with lower inflation, maybe also somewhat, maybe a, a bit lower growth, but you probably would have had a good trade there. So the Fed also deserves some of the blame here. I think the Fed has done a, a, a good job from 2022 onward, but you had this combined failure between the administration and the Fed where you had a combination of too much fiscal stimulus, too much monetary stimulus, and at least one of them should have been reduced. But broadly speaking, the US handled it all pretty well. I mean, COVID is a... You know, a, a global pandemic is a you know once in a century mm -hmm. shock. It may be more than once in a century going forward, but nonetheless, other countries didn't do so great. It seems to be that it, that that some credit goes to both the Congress under Trump as well as under a Biden. Yeah, and and to the to the Trump administration. I mean, Steve Mnuchin, when he was Treasury Secretary, negotiated the CARES Act deal with Nancy Pelosi, which was you know a really a really large amount of fiscal stimulus, more than ideological conservatives would tend to want to do. That improved Trump's reelection odds if you know if he'd listened to real conservative ideologues in, in his administration and had refused to deal with Democrats on areas like you know the the state and local government aid and other things that the Democrats wanted in there, they could have ended up with a smaller package and a worse economic recession and. I think Biden would have had a significantly wider victory over Trump. Hmm. So I think that there were you know, good economic management decisions that that you know that flowed from the Trump administration through into the Biden administration. And you kind of that's separate from some public health stuff that we could discuss. And you want administrations not to be gaming the economy for re-election in general. I mean, that's why we have a an independent Fed. I mean, that's that's. I mean, you can do it to some extent, but you that there's a there's a temptation. Of democratically elected governments to 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 prime the pump, as it were. Well, yes. Although I don't, you know, I think in this, you also want you want incentives to align in that, you know, you you want politicians to believe that if they do better at fighting unemployment, they will get reelected again. Right. The the classic trade off there is the idea that when you have a central bank that's not independent, they print money, it reduces unemployment in the short term, and it increases long term inflation. And I agree that that you know that. The, that has been a historical issue in various places over the decades. I don't think that's really been an issue here in the U.S. in a very long time, and I don't think that was what was happening in 2020. I think CARES was appropriately sized for the for what we knew about the enormous economic shock that we were going to face from the virus. For normies like me who grew up understanding the debt, government debt was mm -hmm. a problem, that it would increase mm -hmm. interest rates, that it was long-term unsustainable that mm -hmm. this was this was we were haunted by these deficits from the from the early 90s onwards essentially when the first bush did that tax increase and and killed his polit political future but nonetheless that was the concern and we now live with debt and deficits of just out of all proportion to what we were worried about then and yet the worry about them seems to have completely disappeared on both sides and i i 
I, I've always puzzled about this. Is debt a problem? Is debt not a problem? And and what do we do with that? What, what, how are we supposed to understand that in the context of the economy? I, I think the, the political uh, outlook on debt ends up lagging by several years, the actual economic effect of debt. The extent to which government debt is a problem depends on other economic conditions. If you're in a situation where the economy, where economic conditions are very tight, where it's difficult for businesses to borrow money to invest, where it's difficult to go out and hire workers, that's the sort of situation that we're in right now, where yes, if the government goes out and spends extra money and borrows money to spend, to, to spend that money, that will tend to have the effect of pushing up interest rates because there, you know, there are more people out there trying to borrow money than there is money available to lend. And so in that situation, you get what's called crowd out, where the, the government, they spend this money and it means that you get less private sector activity because interest rates had to go up and that activity is no longer affordable. And that was the story that I think you were broadly correctly being told in the 1980s and the early 1990s when we had a series of deficit reduction packages, including the one you referenced from George Bush Sr. There was another one in 1993 under Bill Clinton. There was a change right starting sort of, you know, after the dot-com bubble and then especially after the Great Recession, where we had this very long period of very slack economic conditions, where the labor market was perpetually depressed, where interest rates were very low and sometimes were at zero, and where there was really very little competition for capital. And so that meant that the government could, could borrow and spend money and it was, in some economic sense, almost free. And so in that situation, it does make sense to run relatively large budget deficits, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to worry a lot about the government debt. And that I think is, you know, the, I think that lesson was not fully enough learned in the recovery from the, 2000, from the 2008 crash. We didn't do enough economic stimulus, and that's a reason that it took so long for employment to recover. And that lesson's been learned. I think arguably it's now been overlearned. You saw the, this movement called MMT, Modern Monetary Theory, which I would say is really more of a political movement than an economic theory, but was used in effect to push the idea that deficits don't matter and the government should just borrow and spend as much money as it likes. And they were boosted by the fact that there are circumstances in which deficits don't matter very much and those circumstances had been prevailing in, in recent years. The tightness that we've seen in the economy over the last two and a half years or so just blows up that circumstance that had pre prevailed for a couple of decades prior to that. Now deficits matter again. Now it's, you know, the, the government really ought to be doing things to trim the federal budget deficit, which is why the Inflation Reduction Act was called what it was. It was supposed to be fighting inflation in large part by reducing budget deficits. Now, it's, it's not clear that the law actually does that once they added up the true cost of all of these green tax credits they were handing out. But I, you know, I, th I think we are now in a, as an economic situation that looks a lot more similar to what prevailed in 1990 or 1993, where higher interest rates have become necessary because of high inflation. They're going to be a drag to some extent on the economy, even if they don't push us into a recession because they make it more expensive to consume and to invest. And we can take pressure off those interest rates by reducing the federal budget deficit. The problem is that that involves doing unpleasant things. You have to raise taxes or you have to cut spending. And you ask people if they want spending cut, they do, but then they don't actually like spending cuts on any of the programs that are actually really expensive. So that, that will be a tough political conversation, one that I think we're not prepared for in part because over the last 20 years, people really got sick of this idea of talking about deficits. And they were saying, this doesn't, this isn't mattering for the economy. You're just using this as an excuse to try to implement some other policy. Why should we care about reducing deficits? I think there's going to have to be some economic bite from it for some period before people realize there's actually an economic upside again but to deficit reduction. in the intervening period between the early 90s and yeah. now, the debt itself mm -hmm. has exploded. Now, does that mm -hmm. mean nothing? The fact that we now have 
stratospheric levels of government debt that that has to be financed at some level. If interest rates go up, it's going to cost the government more to finance that debt. Mm-hmm. It's increasingly gobbling up a share of the of the, of, of mm-hmm. the budget that the federal government has. I think it's it's is it close or even more than defense at this point? But it, it's it's a real burden and it keeps going up, mm-hmm. and no one ever suggests bring it back down. So what would your response to that be? That, that Yeah, sure. Different well, moments require different attitudes towards the debt. But if we mm-hmm. continue just to add more and more and more, more debt to the country, something is going to have to give at some point. Am I just wrong about this? Am I, am I deluded? Well, I mean, the larger size of the of the debt relative to the economy does increase the economic pressure for deficit reduction. It's the, the, that, the fact that the existing debt is more expensive to service than it would have been if the debt amount was smaller means that we have less room in the federal budget and there's, and there's greater pressure for deficit reduction. So that's true. I'd say it's a matter of degree rather than a matter of kind. When people talk about, you know, something has to give, it's not like we reach a tipping point where it's okay and then it's not okay anymore. It, 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 it becomes gradually more of a problem and it's more problematic than it would have been if the if the debt level was lower and there were periods during that time from 2001 to 2020 where defi- where budget deficits were larger than they needed to be for the economic conditions you know we should have run a bigger budget deficit like in 2010 but there wasn't a real reason to do the sort of fiscal expansion that we had in 2017 in the form of the Trump tax cut that was you know that was not warranted by the 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 economic conditions that were pretty good at that time so there were opportunities that we passed on to to reduce the total level of the debt that we should have taken during that period. The other thing I'd note is that one silver lining of this unexpected burst of inflation is that it actually reduced the burden of the federal debt because debt is is issued in nominal terms. The government issues a $100 bond today and it's due in 10 years and the government pays back $100 then and there's more inflation that makes it effectively less costly for the government to, to pay that back. So you actually saw that was a significant downward pressure on debt as a percentage of GDP that you basically, in the same way that homeowners have a have an unexpected benefit, or well, it's, uh, economists expect that. I think most homeowners don't think about the fact that if there's inflation and pushes your home price up, it doesn't push your mortgage balance up, you actually come out ahead in that deal at the same time that the bank is coming out behind from having all these low rate mortgages out there. So the, you, the debtors can get an advantage from unexpected inflation since the government is a big debtor. That has helped to, to mitigate some of the, the, the economic pressure that comes from the large size of that debt. But yes, the, the fact that we're starting from a higher level creates more pressure for deficit reduction. In terms of reducing the debt, you know, I, think, I think a lot of people realize we need to reduce the debt as a percentage of GDP. In order to do that, you don't actually have to reduce the nominal amount of the debt. So long as the economy is growing, you just need the debt to grow more slowly than the economy does. And the, the serviceability of your debt improves over time. The debt relative to the size of your economy goes down. So I think that's the sort of trajectory the U.S. is going to need. Um, <laughs> is it, it's not about is ever it a paying... trajectory that has occurred in the last 30 years? Because I certainly don't see it. I mean... Well, well, in the last 30 years, yeah. I mean, you know, we, we ran budget surpluses in the late oh, 1990s. That's true. That's true. Very so well, right. uh, it, uh, there have been tech, periods. A little tech boom bubble, which quickly yes. collapsed. But the idea that the government only very, uh, very rarely runs a surplus, even just like racking right. up debts, but it, I, I, it's just... But my point is it doesn't need to run a surplus. Right. So I long know, as right. the deficit is small no, I, enough I, I that, yeah. the, that the debt is growing smaller than the economy, then your debt to GDP ratio will improve. I mean, people... 
I, it's wrong to compare the government's balance sheet to that of a household. This is a mistake people made. They're like, you know, well, you would never borrow money like this. The government is much more like a corporation than it is like a household. Because a household, the reason you have to pay off debt eventually is that you're going to retire and then you're going to die. And so you're using mortgage debt and other debt to smooth your, your consumption over your life. You borrow money early in your career to buy a house. You pay that off so that you have retirement savings so that you can continue consuming at the end of your life cycle and then you die. And so there's, there are reasons that debt should go up and down over time. A corporation doesn't, doesn't actually exist forever, but it intends to exist indefinitely. And so long as the corporation continues to, to be a valuable enterprise, it's financed by a combination of debt and equity. And if the company is growing, its debt load can grow and grow and grow over time in conjunction with the company. And there's nothing inherently unsustainable about that. Mm. If ExxonMobil has a lot of bonds outstanding, that reflects the fact that ExxonMobil is a valuable business and expects to continue to be a valuable business. So similarly, a government, you, you never have to pay off the debt. The government just needs to have a debt load that is, that is appropriate in size compared to the size of the economy that it can levy taxes on. And so that's, you know, that's, that still can be a daunting task. And we still have, we still have more debt than we should by that measure. But it's not like, you know, it's not like it would be responsible to eventually move the debt to zero. Would it be fair to say that the Trump administration's shift away from free trade with China, at least some ratcheting back of free trade with China has been continued and intensified somewhat by the Biden administration that the, Absolutely. the Trump policy policy, I mean, proposals to invest in infrastructure has actually been done by the Biden administration, which it wasn't done under the Trump administration. So you have a, a slight, you know, unity in a way or synchrony between the last two administrations in moving uh, general economic policy to a, a Against free trade, especially with respect to China, which was obviously our biggest mm -hmm. biggest trading partner, is this going to continue? You think indefinitely that this that we're going to increasingly freeze the China relationship out, and we've also, of course, frozen the Russian relationship mm -hmm. out as well. Is this is this? I mean, in some ways, we talk about the Biden Trump administration as as utterly different, but in some macroeconomic ways, they. They seem to be reflecting a broader shift in the mm -hmm. U.S. Yeah, there's more policy continuity between the two administrations than I think people from either of them would tend to tell you. And obviously, there's been a huge difference in rhetoric and in style and in you know adherence to the rule of law. But from a, from a policy level, a, a lot of things have been have been continuous. I mean, I, I'd also add the the fiscal stimulus in response to mm -hmm. COVID was another area of continuity. Immigration policy has been less different between the two administrations, also until recently. The, the rhetoric. Would tend would tend to indicate, and so I you well, know well, the well, I, hold I, on one second. I mean, they've recently yeah. just declared that anyone who wants to get a visa can get one online, and they don't have to wait at the border; they can just fly in and stay indefinitely, right? So that's about maybe up to two million people have been admitted under Biden who are permanent permanently part of the United States. I don't. I. I don't. I'm not deeply familiar with those numbers. Is, isn't the. Uh, isn't that program capped at three hundred sixty thousand a year? I, I think for some individual nations it is, but I think collectively, if you if you add up everyone who's now come to the U.S. over the last three years, you you see a a, a much bigger increase in. Uh, what we would otherwise have called illegal immigration, but now is called legal just by by the function of the Biden administration saying it's legal until we find out it's illegal. So come on in. So there has been I'm, a I'm huge not, shift in that respect. 
I'm, I'm not I'm not deeply read in on, on those numbers. But I, what I was referring to was the Biden administration's efforts to 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 limit the ability of people to apply for asylum at the border, including by getting people to remain in Mexico, even if they're they're calling the program under a different name, that there have been that there have been sort of similar efforts to to impose restrictions at the border, including the yeah, the, but, the type but of not at the border. If you if you give if, if you're given an app where you can apply, you don't yes. have to wait at the border, you can just come in and buy regular channels. In other words, They've 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 ended the the appearance of being besieged by immigrants by simply letting them all in legally. Um, the 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 app based admission certain certainly is a difference. Although I mean there were also I mean part of the reason that people were coming even under the Trump administration was that there were that there were holes in the system and ways to to get you know tied up in paperwork for years while being present in the United States. Um, that you know, still the, applies. People, there's no there's no way these new immigrants right, are going to get a day in court for a few years. Right, exactly, but but uh, the, but that is what I mean about the continuity that, mm-hmm. the, that the situation has has had those similarities through both administrations in terms of structure. We to go back to trade. The I, I think yes, the, there's absolutely continuity between the two administrations on the approach to China, a desire to essentially ice China out of key parts of the global economy. And if anything, the Biden administration has been more aggressive here than the Trump administration on the on the economic channels, using restrictions on the use of technology that has you know that, that has any link to to U.S. companies to make it very difficult for China to to do business in advanced semiconductors. And that is that, that is imposing, you know, very real penalties on Chinese business and the Chinese economy, and in a way that I think the Chinese correctly perceive as a significant economic escalation against them. I think that rep- that reflects a growing bipartisan consensus that China is is hostile, and that there have been real costs associated with the global economic tie up with China, costs that can't be fully reflected economically. I think people see a, a geopolitical reason to need to constrain China's power regardless of its effect on the GDP numbers. And so in terms of how the, how the Biden administration is thinking about trade, I sort of separate the China stuff from broader global perspectives that they have. I, I disagree with the approach that they've taken that is that is broadly protectionist, that is really focused on the idea of, of keeping supply chains in the United States. I think there are certain sort of there are certain areas of where the where you can make an economic security argument about either war or pandemics or that sort of thing where you where you need things onshored. But I think they broadly are too focused on the idea that it is good thing good if things that are ma- are made in the United States create certain jobs and certain sectors, but if you make it more more expensive to import steel or other things, that actually makes it harder to create jobs in sectors that consume steel. And there are a lot more people who work in industries that consume steel than industries that produce it. So I think that that broadly protectionist perspective, when applied against countries that are not hostile to us, you know, I don't want to apply the, the China perspective to Mexico or to EU countries or to Canada or anything like that. I think that has been somewhat economically harmful. That, of course, is also an area of continuity from the Trump administration, where where Trump had a certain amount of skepticism of the idea of global trade, so I think you know I I think on China they have good reasons for doing what they're doing. On the rest of it, I wish that there was they were more broadly open to free trade, but I think that's been a sort of unfortunate shift in both parties that the the free trade consensus has broken down. And and um, we've in seen part a, because the China lessons have been so. And bad. we've seen a, a a really big increase in 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 the construction of factories in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Factories for what? Is this is this Enviro technology mainly? Is it is it green energy stuff? Is it is it just widgets? Is it, what is it? 
I think it's broadly across a lot of sectors. And I think, you know, some of it has to do with specific policies that the administration has made in conjunction with Congress that, that make it, that make it economic, that make it advantageous from a financial perspective to do business in the U S mm. to, you know, to meet conditions of tax credits that they are creating and that sort of thing. I think some of it is also a reaction to non-policy factors. I think the the supply chain disruptions that we saw over the last few years create a reason for businesses to say, you know, well, even if even I can if I can get the parts slightly cheaper from China, I don't want my stuff st stuck in a shipping container for five months again, and I'm willing to pay a bit of a premium to have things made here in the U.S. or geographically closer to the U.S. Um, so I think it's not it's not all about public policy. Um, and then the third thing is just that there's sort of there's strong overall economic conditions aside from inflation. Consumer spending has continued to be quite robust, you know, more, more robust than I think a lot of economists had, spe had expected it to be. And I think partly businesses are just responding to that. They're seeing that it is a good time to invest and grow, and that's why they're investing. But I think it's a combination of those factors. So when we look at this picture, and then we look at how Americans see it and how they are mm -hmm. responding to it, uh, the, the times have just done the last couple of days to big polls that they, uh, mm. seem pretty legit. Mm. And essentially, Biden is doing terribly. I think it's what is he 39 or 40% general approval? 39 was the approval right. number there. Um, well, well, you've just described an economy, described an economy whose policies are relatively consistent with the previous administration that have led to considerable success in, in many areas, certainly mm -hmm. sellable politically. Factories are very sellable politically. Infrastructure is very sellable politically. High employment rates are very sellable politically. But most people seem to not be that impressed. with. I mean, there's slight improvements in understanding of how the economy is, but most people are not mm -hmm. impressed. Biden is not a popular president is historically extremely unpopular at this point in time in his term. In a head-to-head -head with Trump, it's basically tied. Yeah, it is a tie in the times. Yeah. So, so why does Biden get no credit? This is the, the big political question. Well, I mean, I think the, the first thing to say is that inflation has been a, a large and very real problem. And until recent months, it was combined with negative real wage growth. So people were going out there and they were saying everything at the store is more expensive, or at least many of the key things I buy are more expensive. And the growth in my paycheck is not keeping up with that. And so they had, they had good reason to be upset. And even if it's a trade-off between inflation and employment, inflation affects everybody. Employment, you know, most people would still be employed even if the job market was much more slack. And so I, I don't think a lot of people walk out of their house in the morning and say, if not for Joe Biden, I would not be employed today. And for most of them, that's not that's not true. They would still be employed under a, under a different uh, set of, of economic circumstances, whereas they, they look out and they say things are got, have gotten more expensive. There are some good reasons to blame that on the government, and then also the the, the government and the, the you know the incumbent political leadership of the government tends to get blamed for that, whether or not they're really responsible. So I think that's at the top of the list. People have people have very they have good reasons to complain. I don't I don't want to suggest that the, the public is simply deluded about the economy. I do think that people should. I do think it would be good if members of the public looked more at the global comparisons and saw that the, that these problems are global in nature. The problems are very real, but I don't think that they can be ascribed as much as, as people tend to think to the, to the faults of, of one specific government. And, and the problems are, you know, they are a little bit in part about 
the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Democrats like to talk about that. But there are a number of other factors, including, you know, including hangovers still from, from COVID. And the, the Biden administration's overstimulation of the economy is one of the key factors that drove inflation. So I think that's, you know, that's answer number one, is that the, this has been an, a weak point for the administration. They're getting punished for it. I think, secondly, Biden has never had a base of super enthusiastic fans. He's, he's acceptable to a lot of people. But he never had the sort of cult of personality that Trump had or that Obama had. He doesn't the he he doesn't inspire the Democratic base in, in the way that another politician could. And there have been political upsides to that for him. He's being less of a polarizing figure doesn't just mean that you excite your base more. It also means you it doesn't mean you just that you excite your base less. You also excite the other base less. And that can come out ahead for you politically. But I think that's that's a reason that his numbers can get soft like that. One thing I would note is that in 2020, Biden won won a clear majority of voters who dis, who disliked both him and Donald Trump. And so that can make Biden's numbers look weaker than they actually are. He is likelier than some other politicians to pick up the votes of people who don't approve of what he's doing. And similarly, Democrats did quite well in the midterms among poll respondents who said that they somewhat disapproved of Joe Biden's performance. So I think part of that is people to his left who tell pollsters they don't approve of him because they wish he would do something more liberal, but they are likely to come home and vote for him anyway when election time comes around. And some of that is just people who who are dissatisfied with our politics from wherever they sit on the political spectrum and who wish that the candidates were someone other than Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And I think a lot of those people, just like they did in 2020, will come to the conclusion that Donald Trump is unacceptable and therefore they have to vote for Joe Biden. Except this poll, even though the they actual, don't care for the, him that the much. The Times poll did drill down on that, as I, 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 I mm-hmm. read, which it, it looked at those voters that didn't like either, which neither were running. Yeah. And among those voters, it was pretty even. I think Biden had a it was pre- tiny little edge over Trump. But so that's not that's not a big lead was, in the way that he had it was even it was even, but the poll was also 43-43, which means that you have a lot of voters who are who are up for grabs there. And those, you know, undecided voters are likelier to be people who are unhappy with with either candidate. So I think, you know, part of it I, I think is likely to be the case that some of those voters just haven't come home yet in the polls. So you're um, you're relatively that, confident that Biden's gonna see this through. I think he I think he's I, I think he's the odds on favorite to win this election. I mean, I'd also push back on you. I, you know, you're you're so distressed about the idea of, you know, it's so bad if we renominate him, he's going to lose. I'm wondering what your counterfactual is, what you imagine to be a different scenario where Joe Biden is not the Democratic nominee that works better for the Democratic Party. What happens? How, how do you get Joe Biden off the ticket and get to a circumstance where Democrats are likelier to win than if he were the nominee? I think that's an extremely good question. I think it's the it's the reason why he's still the nominee is because yeah. there is no one, including very much his vice president, who could conceivably be seen as someone who could carry on his kind of politics. But it says a lot about Biden that he picked a an extreme left winger who has apparently zero political skills as his as his as his vice president for entirely racial and gender reasons he even said that himself well i mean i'd say a couple of things i one is i don't think kamala's problem is that she is extreme i mean kamala is sort of doesn't even appear to have a core to me and you know the when she was a district attorney in San Francisco, a key you know the basis of her of her candidacy, where she unseated an incumbent DA, was that he was not tough enough, and she tried to do this sort of synthesis where you know you say you're smart on crime and you know it is compassionate to prosecute criminals and that sort of thing. That version of Kamala Harris, I think, could have 
positioned herself quite well in our national politics today. The problem is that she changes with the winds to whatever she thinks is going to to benefit her where she is. And I think people see her as a little bit soulless because of that. But Except the one, she's old, one she silver lining always... there is maybe she could change again. <laughs> but she does have a consistent in as much as she always she's always about her yeah. race and her, her sex. Well, I, I think I think part of the, I, in her mind, in Biden's mind and in the Democratic base's mind for her being vice president. I think part of the, the political problem with Kamala is that she is, you know, she's willing to change with the winds, but she's also not that good at it. And I think that the, the campaign that she ran in 2020 was heavily influenced by very online ideas and what you would get if you talked to the progressive left wing base, of the Democratic Party, and thought that they were representative of broader electoral feeling. And that's a mistake that a lot of people made. It's a mistake that a lot of people in the media made, but it's not a mistake that Joe Biden made. And I think that's a real political weakness for her. I guess, you know, it, it may not be that important to discuss why Kamala is unpopular. I mean, the, the fact remains that, that she is unpopular and she demonstrated some of these weaknesses at the time that Joe Biden chose to put her on the ticket. You know, even if Joe Biden was restricting himself to putting a woman of color on the ticket, I think that there were better options available to him. I think, you know, if, if Val Demings, the, the then congresswoman from Orlando, had been put on the ticket, I think that would have ended up being a better political choice. But, you know, the people made a lot of choices in the summer of 2020 that look kind what of substantively ridiculous in has Biden done that is not part of Harris's identitarian politics? Has he done anything to distance himself from the woke left in any way at all? Well, I don't think it's been that central. Hi there. To this is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>